0: To Crossview Radio, weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, one of the things I have been trying to communicate about social justice is uh, that almost every core conviction of the woke is a conviction that is rooted somewhere in history. People today, for the most part, have no clue where their thoughts come from. People think like Rousseau or Sartre or Gramsci, but they don't know it. They think that they are thinking for themselves, but instead these thoughts have already been articulated in the past, many times with devastating consequences. It has always fascinated me that the government, schools, colleges, universities, the media, Hollywood, and almost every business in America today is woke, and yet we still believe that we are thinking uh, in a unique way, we are thinking for ourselves, and interestingly enough, we still believe in systemic racism. People still believe that the system is rigged against women, gays, transgenders, or blacks, When the entire system overwhelmingly is in support of the woke agenda, someone recently posted a picture with almost 200 business logos, all with the LGBT colors, presumably from the month of June we have to ask ourselves a question, what organization has not jumped on board? And why do so many people think they are opposing the system when the system is overwhelmingly on their side? And this is what I want to address today, the topic of systemic racism or systemic injustices. How did we get here? What ideologies influence us? And what does the Bible have to say? First, a very brief history lesson. Much of society's thinking in this area was shaped and fashioned by uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was a Marxist philosopher, uh, born in 1891 and died in 1937. He's probably most well-known for his prison notebooks. Gramsci developed his idea of hegemony, which basically means this, a dominant group controls another group through their beliefs. Uh, rather than through some sort of physical coercion. Uh, The police are not needed because you have helped someone to think uh, in a way that will point them in the direction you want them to go. A dominant group gains control over another group when they convince that other group how to think. It's a battle really over the mind. One person calls this our cultural software. This is the default way a society thinks. Gramsci's influence in academia has been monumental. Uh, one author says this. He says, quote, "'Gramsci has also been a major influence on a range of philosophers, historians, sociologists, educationalists, and especially cultural theorists. Indeed, the whole discipline of cultural studies is largely the result of his influence, and his impact on the humanities and social sciences has been nothing short of immense.'" As Andrew Roberts summarizes, Gramsci was perhaps the most important communist thinker in the West since Marx himself, whose whose views he modernized and adapted for the 20th century, and nowhere were his ideas followed more effectively than in academia. Gramsci's hegemony is applied to the modern context in this way It is believed and taught that the whites are the dominant group, and they hold power over blacks and other minorities. This power means that whites have convinced the blacks to adopt white values, even values that are harmful to blacks, but advantageous to whites. The reason that blacks don't fight back is because they have been convinced in their minds that these white values are really true. Whites have sold a lie to blacks, and now they just keep the system going, and the whites don't have to resort to force. Uh, The battle then is not physical, but ideological. This relates to our present topic because um, uh, I just described systemic injustice, or at least their definition of systemic injustice. Racism, uh, again, according to the woke, has become the norm in our society, so much so that it has become ingrained in our institutions, and this has happened so pervasively that even black people are willing to continue institutions that harm them because of hegemony. They are blind to their own destruction. This is why people need to be, in their view, woke. They need to wake up to the injustice surrounding them. The book Beyond Critique, a pro-social justice book, uh, defines our term this way. Uh, uh, Hegemony is the dominance or power of one cultural group over another— which can be supported through the consent of the subordinate group when the members of the subordinate group begin to accept, adopt, and internalize the values and norms of the dominant group. Now, keep in mind that this can also be weaponized. And we want to read a couple of quotes. Uh, typically, this this um, idea is taken to um, to to refer to the oppression of um, black people by white people, at least today. That's one of the ways it's applied. But it also can be used to uh, control anybody in society. And uh, I want to read a couple quotes here. Uh, Here's one from from, a quote, from one point of view, Gramsci's neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, is a significant improvement on classical Marxism in that it advocates what Gramsci called a war of position instead of a war of maneuver. That is, sustained ideological subversion Rather than violent political revolution. However, this is simply a difference of means, not of end. The goal remains the same: the destruction of Western culture and the replacement of the Christian Church with the communist state. End quote. Okay, what what this author is saying is that um, Gramsci's neo-Marxism really can be uh, weaponized. In a way that is very similar to classical Marxism, except the big difference is that you don't need to use physical force to accomplish this. You can use what this author calls uh, a sustained ideological subversion. You can slowly convince a culture to change its values, and then you will accomplish the same end. And of course, in this example... Uh, In the Marxist example, it is to destroy Western culture and obviously the church. Uh, Pro-social justice advocates now can use this concept of hegemony to influence people to their point of view. They can make it so that anyone who thinks differently than them uh, is bigoted and whatever, so on and so forth. This same author continues and says this, quote. Furthermore, as superficially comforting as it is to think that this could somehow be accomplished bloodlessly, it is arguably even more insidious, for this is a revolution by stealth, an exercise in systematic brainwashing by sustained subversion from within. Um, Gramsci means to replace Western culture by subverting it by doing what it takes to compel it to redefine itself rather than by picking fights with it, end quote. Fascinating, kind of has 1984 vibes to it. This idea of, of brainwashing, of subversion, of something that's taking place over perhaps a long period of time, uh, not through force, um, but through a slow change of values. Next, we read this, and this is from a book called That Hideous Strength. Uh, This is not, by the way, C.S. Lewis's book by the same title. Uh, This book was written uh, more recently by uh, an author by the name of Melvin Tinker. And in this book, he says this. He says, quote, Here we come to the writings of the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci and his key idea of hegemony. This is the process by which a dominant class exerts and maintains its influence over people through non-coercive means such as schools, the media, and marketing. It works by changing what Peter Berger calls the plausibility structures of a society, that is, those background assumptions, beliefs, and ways of thinking and acting which are taken as given. This is the presumption which declares, of course, everyone nowadays knows that— the aim is to get people to think and feel for themselves that certain values and practices, such as same-sex marriage, are common sense, fair, or even natural, end quote. Now, hopefully things are starting to make sense here in what we're saying. All of government, the public education system, the private education system, all businesses, the entire media, they are all pushing a very specific narrative, and here is the goal. The goal is for all the dissenters— which is you and I, and I guess I shouldn't assume you and I, since I don't know what your view is as you're listening to this podcast, but the goal is for the dissenters, and I would be one of them, is to say to ourselves, man, I feel stupid for not believing this. Am I going insane? Am I the only one who thinks this way? And then eventually they cave. This is the pressure that is being put on us as a society right now. The Bible calls this the fear of man. What surprises me about deconstructionists and all those people who are departing the church who are so vocal about independent thinking is that they jump right into the world view that all of government, the public education system, the private education system, all businesses, and the entire media is pushing. It should not be surprising, but it is surprising. If people were really and truly independent thinkers— You would think that maybe we'd have a more equally distributed collection of worldviews going on out there, but everyone is going woke. They're all converging on one way of thinking, which doesn't sound too independent to me. But, of course, what do I know? I'm just a hick pastor. But, of course, I'm getting off track. We're talking about systemic injustices, and historically speaking, the modern notion of systemic injustice is rooted in Gramsci's idea of power— and hegemony. Apply that today, and you have, according to the woke, powerful whites oppressing blacks, not through force, but through white values. The question now that we have to look at is whether or not this is true, and I want to make an observation here uh, as, as we begin to explore this question, and that is that, first of all, sin is systemic because we are all sinners, So, in in one sense, original sin is systemic. It affects all of us. Seen from this perspective, we actually might argue that the woke don't go far enough. They just identify one group as oppressing others. The Bible says that we are all guilty of sin. In addition to that, it is true that certain sins, individual sins, can be systemic, and I want to give you an example of this. In Titus 1, Paul says in verses 12 through 13, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, at first glance, this verse seems to justify the woke in believing that racism is systemic. They may reply, see, it is possible for sin to be systemic among a certain cultural or ethnic group. After all, Paul said that Cretans are always liars. Therefore, we are justified to say that whites are always racist. I want to read to you a quote from Richard Delgado. Remember, I quoted him um, a few different times uh, in his book, um, Critical Race Theory, which I said is probably the go-to textbook source on critical race theory. But here's what he says. He says, quote, By contrast, many critical race theorists and social scientists hold that racism is pervasive, systemic, and deeply ingrained. If we take this perspective, then no white member of society seems quite so innocent. Did you hear his confession there? He says, if you believe that racism is systemic, then what is the result of that? No white member of society seems quite so innocent. Now, I want to note here that there is a big difference between what is going on and what Paul is saying in the New Testament and what Delgado is saying in critical race theory. There is a difference between generalizing and holding a view of uh, hegemony and power. And the difference can be seen in Delgado's quote. Specifically, he says, no white member of society seems quite so innocent. Do you see the difference between that and Cretans are always liars? Do you see the the, the difference between these two statements? Generalizations are always subject to outliers that don't fit the mold. Perhaps an example will help. Now, let me say this. It's important that we understand what we're not saying. We're not denying that sin can be institutionalized into the very fabric and structures of society. It doesn't take very long to realize that the particularly heinous sin of abortion has been institutionalized in American culture. Abortion is, in that sense, systemic. We are not against the reality that sin can be and that sin is institutionalized. What we are against, however... Is the difference between individualism and collectivism specifically against collectivism? Okay, so let's go to this abortion argument. Let's give an example here. The Christian, uh, if we were to if we were to copy Delgado's sentence that I quoted a few seconds ago, and we were to apply that to abortion, I think you would see how this sounds absurd. The first part. Uh, I think uh we would probably have to agree with but it's the second part that we would take issue with. So let's 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 substitute abortion in for his quote here. Um we hold that abortion is pervasive, systemic and deeply ingrained. If we take this perspective, then no woman member of society seems quite so innocent. You see how absurd that is to to say it that way. This reveals the folly of systemic racism as believed by Delgado and others. Just because abortion is systemic in our country does not mean that we hold every individual guilty. And in the same way, even if racism was systemic in our country, we could not hold every white individual guilty. Even if it was true that racism was systemic, we would take issue with the second part of Delgado's statement that says, No white member of society seems quite so innocent. What we are against is judging the individual by the group. We are against the statement, no white member of society seems quite so innocent. We are in favor of judging the individual according to the merits of the individual situation. We are against judging the individual according to the actions of someone else. Furthermore, we do believe and we do admit that there are white racists who do exist. Again, I prefer um, the statement ethnic partiality, um, but this sin does exist just like any other sin. But I do think that maybe if you're having a little trouble following kind of what I'm saying, we believe this but not this, uh, perhaps this quote from Stephen Hicks will help uh clear this up a little bit. He says this about collectivism. Quote, once you become a collectivist, bottom line, you don't see individuals anymore. When you stop seeing individuals anymore, you dehumanize the enemy at a further level, and you're willing to do worse things Also, you don't see yourself as an individual anymore, and that strips away any sense of I am responsible, and once people don't see themselves as individually responsible, they dehumanize themselves. They are willing to do more brutal things, and that is exactly what happened in the French Revolution, and it's exactly what happens in any collectivized revolution, end quote. We can and should see generalities. But we must always be cautious so that we do not fall into the collectivist trap and no longer see individuals. When you apply the Gramsci mindset to today's social justice agenda, what you get is a very odd thing. People today know exactly how they should treat someone based on their skin color with no regard to the individual. If you're white, you're automatically put in a certain box. And if you're black, you're automatically put in a certain box. Today, we see this happening in college entrance interviews and whether or not people qualify for financial assistance. This is really not much different than the mindset of the KKK. If you're white, we know how to treat you. If you're black, we know how to treat you. The reason that I can't embrace the claim that we are systemically racist is because every time I ask someone to give me an example, they can only cite far-off, distant, unprovable stories. For instance, I spoke with the BLM group a few months ago who were protesting uh, at the Worcester Square, and I got into conversation with someone who told me they had a goal of banning chokeholds. Um, and I am one who thinks that Uh, we have to judge the merit of that based on each individual situation. What is it like, for instance, here in Worcester? And so I asked this individual if uh, a chokehold had ever been used unjustly against someone. Again, this seems like a fair and reasonable question. If we are going to make the claim that this is unjust or that it is uh, used... Uh, with uh, undue proportion to one ethnic group or another, which it, it could be. I'm not saying that it's not. It could be. But if if it is and we want justice, then we're going to have to know that information so that we can make that decision. And so I asked him um, if it had ever been unjustly used against anyone, and he did not know, and yet he was advocating for this. And I um, also asked him when the last time a chokehold was used uh, in the city of Worcester, and I happen to know that it has been ten years since one was used. Um, th- this this is this is what we are saying is that if we are going to say that something is an example or an illustration of systemic or uh, yeah systemic injustice then what we need to do is we need to be able to demonstrate that or to help people understand that. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Where is this going on in Wayne County, in Worcester? I asked this question as well. Give me examples uh, of systemic injustice here, and he could not give any, the closest thing, um, that I got was, um, that when certain people are out in public, um, other people look down, look at them with a bad look. And again, where is something that's tangible? Uh, now I want to say something genuinely here, not as if everything else I said was not genuine, but I want to say something, uh, Genuinely, with a sincere heart, and that is this. If there are legitimate forms of injustice in our local community, I want to know about it, and I want to have the opportunity to call out those who are unjust. uh, I'm I'm giving a legitimate call here that if anyone who is listening to this— can reach out to me and tell me a specific instance where we have institutionalized racism here in Wayne County, Ohio, our local community. I I want to know about this, and and I I I mean this when I say that I'm genuine. I, I'm not saying this. I'm not, I'm not saying. All right, uh, yeah, come on, prove it to me. There's nothing out there. I, the, listen, I'm a Calvinist, okay? I believe in total depravity. I know that we are all bad. I, I am genuinely interested to know where the systemic injustice exists in our community. To those people, if, if you're listening to this and you are fighting for justice, what are you fighting to end? What? Where is, who has been wronged? Who, give me a name of a person or an example or an ill or something what are we supposed to do differently than we're doing now uh i i'm looking for this because i have asked people who are pro-social justice and i d- continue to get non-answers now let me just give one uh piece of advice here sometimes people cite disparities as evidence of systemic injustice and so before you call me or text me or email me or however you're going to reach out uh is and and you're going to use a disparity is the disparity proving that there is systemic injustice because we have to remember that uh, correlation does not imply causation. Okay, disparities by themselves is n- that's not proof of injustice. It might be, but it's by, but by itself it's not proof. You have to give an example of an unjust disparity. So l- let, me, let me let me say a couple words about disparities. Okay, again, correlation does not imply causation. Deaths by drowning increase as ice cream sales increase, okay? Now, we would be foolish to say that ice cream sales cause death by drowning. The reason that death by drowning increases as ice cream sales increase is because on hot days, more people are swimming, and therefore more people die by drowning, And likewise, on hot days, more people buy ice cream. And so correlation does not imply causation. Uh, we, We have to be very careful in this, that if we are going to say this disparity exists, that we have to be able to say causation. What is the causation on this? And so since correlation does not imply causation, we can recognize that outcome gaps or disparities are not inherently, they could be, but not inherently caused by systemic injustices. Again, consider what the authors of the coddling of the American mind say about this. Uh, they say quote, "social scientists are self-appointed conversation referees." Throwing a yellow penalty flag when anyone tries to interpret a correlation as evidence of causation. But a funny thing has been happening in recent years on campus. Nowadays, when someone points to an outcome gap or a disparity and makes the claim that the gap itself is evidence of systemic injustice, social scientists often just nod along with everyone else in the room, end quote. This is a fascinating observation okay the broader context um and by the way i recommend you read this book but the broader context of that quote is that it's the social scientists who are normally saying well hold on pause just a second Uh, are you sure yes there's a disparity there yes there is an outcome gap but are we sure that's a, a result of systemic injustice the authors say the social scientists aren't doing that anymore. They're just nodding along, okay? Now, here's part of the reason why they just nod along, uh, or at least as as the authors uh, believe it to be. Uh, they say this, quote, If professors and students are hesitant to raise alternative explanations for outcome gaps, then theories about those gaps may harden into orthodoxy. Ideas may be accepted not because they are true, but because the politically dominant group wants them to be true in order to promote its preferred narrative and preferred set of remedies. At that point, backed by the passion and certainty of activists, flawed academic theories may get carried out of the academy and be applied in high schools, corporations, and other organizations, end quote. That is a fascinating, fascinating quote. The point of the authors is that disparities are not always caused by injustices. There are other reasons why disparities uh, exist. They uh, discuss in this chapter, the same chapter where this quote was found, uh, they discuss uh, Title IV and how it eventually tried to implement equal outcomes, not equal opportunities, but equal outcomes. Um, So uh, they give some examples of how colleges embrace this and tried to make sure that men and women were equally represented in their college sports. The problem with this is that generally speaking, men and women have different interests. Disparities on the football team is not because men are discriminating against women, but because most (laughs) women don't like to play football. Not all, but most. Uh, That's so 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 when you see, let's reverse engineer this for a second. When when you see a disparity, wow, there's uh, a men's football team, but not a women's football team, uh, or there's more men involved in sports on college campus than women are. Um, the, the what what the woke are doing with this uh, is they're looking at these disparities, these differences and they're saying this must be caused by systemic injustice, systemic racism, or whatever. It must be institutionalized. It must be ingrained because they're assuming, they're making the assumption that if there was no systemic problem, no systemic injustice, that there would be an equal distribution amongst every every sport and activity. So, um, you, you would have the same exact percentage, whatever your campus is. If your campus has 50% men and 50% women, then your football team would be 50% men and 50% women. And if it's not that way, it's because of uh, structural injustices, uh, systemic injustices. Um, what the authors of the College of the American Mind are saying is that those disparities – could be caused by systemic injustice, but they could be caused by something else. And they're also saying that in the past, social scientists used to throw that yellow flag and say, uh, pause, hold on a second, let's talk about causation here, but they're not doing that anymore. The authors note this. They say, quote, but are there other differences? Are there other causal pathways. If you suggest an alternative explanation for the gap, others may take you to be saying that the problem is not as severe as the speaker believes it is. And if anyone in the room is displeased by that suggestion, then you might be accused of committing a microaggression, specifically a microinvalidation. If your alternative hypothesis includes the speculation that there could be differences in some underlying factor, some input that is relevant to the outcome, for example, a sex difference in how much men or women enjoy sports or computer programming, then you might be violating a serious taboo, end quote. Okay? So they're going on to say that if you dare speak up and say, maybe this gap or disparity is due to the fact that... Um, there's a difference between men and women, then you have committed a serious taboo. What modern social justice advocates fail to realize is that not every disparity is due to injustice. What I have not seen is the social justice advocates proving that disparities are due to injustice. Rather, what they say is something like this. Look, there's a higher percentage of blacks in prison today than whites. This is obviously racism and systemic injustice. Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but we've got to actually do the work to figure that out. What is the cause here? There are some things that maybe we won't be able to figure out the causes, and there are some things that we will. Uh, But if you you just simply declare this disparity is due to racism— then I and and you're not willing to go through the work of figuring out why that's the case. I would say that you don't love the truth. Now this used to be, by the way, to to, to borrow from this specific example of uh, the percentage uh, in prison. Uh, Barack Obama, he said this. Uh, this was before he became president. He gave a speech to the NAACP, and he was actually uh, criticized by Jesse Jackson in this. But he talked about something that really is not talked about today anymore. But he talked about the need for personal responsibility. Um, And here's what cannot be left out of the equation when talking about disparities, and that is fatherless homes. Now, I don't know if he still says this or not, uh, because I think it's gone into the realm of the taboo. But there was a time when Obama did concede that and he was arguing for the need for personal responsibility and acknowledging um the the damage that these kinds of things can cause um i'm not saying that 100 percent of all this is due to fatherless homes i think fatherless homes is a major 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 issue in our culture today and it is the root of a lot of problems um But what I'm saying is that you can't take that out of the equation. You can't be dismissive toward that. You can't say, well, forget that. It's all this. How do you know? Have you done the homework to figure that out? Now, what I'm saying is that if you are going to say that disparities are proof of systemic injustice, you're going to have to prove that disparities are proof of systemic injustice. In other words, are you sure there are no other causes And that the cause in this case is absolutely and only systemic injustice. Now, that's one reason that disparities exist. Uh, Disparities exist because uh, of factors other than systemic injustice. They could be to just natural interests. More men enjoy football than women. Uh, Certain uh, fields Uh, jobs, employment, um, more men or more women. However, Uh, there's interest in various um, uh, areas there. But that's not the only reason that disparities exist. Sometimes disparities exist because God designed disparities to exist. And yes, I would suggest that disparities are part of God's creative work. God, after all, has created a world with differences in it, with distinctions in it. God has created uh, moths that are not birds and frogs that are not uh, elephants and so on and so forth. Uh, what we call oftentimes unfair advantages, we have to concede That these things come from the Lord himself. And of course, Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30 is apropos in this situation. In Matthew 25, disparities exist because God caused them to exist, not because of systemic injustice. You know the parable. The master gave three servants unequal amounts of money and expected them to grow the money. He wanted a return on his investment. And so what happened? The first two doubled the investment, and the third hid his money, and he was rebuked by his master. And the unexpected twist in the parable is that the master gives the one talent to the man who had the most money. And so God, uh, the parable is obviously representing the Lord here, but but there's ten talents, there's five talents, one talent. And the one who has 10 is now given the one uh, from the man who hid his in the ground. Uh, In addition to this, we read in 1 Samuel 2, verse 7: the Lord makes poor and makes rich, he brings low and he exalts. God has given some people in this world privilege, to borrow from the modern vernacular, and he has withheld privilege from others. Whether God gives you ten talents or five talents or one talent, he expects you to use those resources wisely for the furtherance of the kingdom. There are white people with more privilege than me, and there are white people with less privilege than me. There are black people with more privilege than me, and there are black people with less privilege than me. I ought not be concerned with this only in what doing in doing what the lord has called me to do in the here and now with what he has given me the lord has given me a family and a community and a church and a home and a place to live and i need to be busy about using what god has given me without complaining or being envious or comparing or any of those kinds of things i need to have my eye on that mission that god has called me to do the danger is that people will blame society, and instead of being productive with what God has given them, they will not be productive. They'll be lazy, and they will not accomplish what— they'll they'll be like the person with the one talent who buried it in the ground. I want to read to you a quote from the book Idols for Destruction. I think I quoted this a couple times earlier in in some earlier episodes here. This was written, by the way, in 1983— And uh, very fascinating in regard to uh, this conversation here. Uh, The author writes this. He says, quote, When social pathologies appear, we blame them on the structures of society, Uh, or if the religious establishment is speaking, our problem becomes structural sin. If the structures of society are guilty and not we, then there is no possibility for personal repentance and no way to deal with guilt. We then do the irrational and destructive acts that maintain the systems of redistribution and humanitarianism in a desperate and futile attempt to expunge guilt feelings by what seem to be good works. Doing as we please and blaming the result on structures is the moral equivalent of the free lunch. By passing repentance and judgment, we try to arrest increasing chaos by adding a special investigative officer to the court. Increasing a subsidy here or a dole there. Implementing a halfway house here, a counseling service there. The diagnosis is wrong, and so the intended cure is futile, end quote. You see, we cannot blame society. We have to take personal responsibility. It's easy. I understand to blame the system. He who chafes against disparities chafes against providence. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Instead of envying your neighbor... How about you invite your neighbor over? Dining room tables, late night bonfires, and backyard football has mended more relationships than social media ever will. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.